Morning, everyone. You're watching online or listening to the podcast as well. We are going to be in Mark chapter nine today, and Margaret is going to read the scripture for us. Thank you. Yes, it's Mark chapter nine, verses thirty-three to fifty, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop. But he wasn't because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. But if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And may he help us to understand that, all that reading. Amen. (laughs) So in case you were wondering, um, this section of Mark's gospel is not one that as a preacher you wake up on Monday morning thinking, hmm, I'm just really looking forward to preaching on this this Sunday with all of this stuff about hell and maimed and... Locks around our neck, sinking us down. Uh, it's it's the kind of passage that that simultaneously makes me regret that we are working through Mark's gospel bit by bit by bit, not avoiding anything, but also be grateful 
uh, because whilst it would be a whole lot easier just to skip over this and we'd have a much more lovely day and just enjoy the sun and, and feel good, uh, actually digging into it is, is, is challenging and uncomfortable, but, but so unbelievably essential for disciples of Jesus to spend time to, to unpack it. Because if we, we skip over this stuff, um, it, if, if, if we don't skip over this stuff, it means that it, we, we, um, we may not have a, 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 just a nice feel-good day, but it might actually shape someone's eternity. Um, so I'm standing here this morning uh, after kind of a week of fear and trembling and, and fear and trembling now and, and a week of just being on my knees before God figuratively and, and literally um, because if I dance around what Jesus is really saying here in a passage like this, I'm at risk of just tickling your ears with with stuff we might want to hear rather than presenting truth that I think actually sets free and gives life. And and I really don't want to be someone who just tickles your ears with what you want to hear. Um, You may know what the scriptures say about that. But beside that, I also really, my heart is that we as, as followers of Jesus would experience freedom and we would experience joy and not just happiness as, or, or, or kind of feeling good as, as the world would define it. And so I, I, I pray that, that somehow, as Margaret just said, God would help us understand this and that it would indeed be good news to us, even though it may be challenging and uncomfortable. Um, please pray with me as I ask for God's help with this today. Father, thank you for your word, your life-giving, transformative uh, word that brings truth and life. And we, we ask, Lord, that as we tackle this end of Mark chapter 9, uh, that the message in it, Lord, somehow we would be able to grasp it. Despite my imperfect words on the page right now, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, would speak through me um, and that you would uh, speak directly to our hearts that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind this morning as we come to your holy living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I just want to start with a bit of uh, so study of the text. There's kind of three little sections in what we just read. Uh, you've got verses 33 to 37 first, where the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, uh, kind of puffing their chest out at each other, and it becomes another lesson in line with the theme of this whole middle section of Mark's gospel, where we're asking the question, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? What kind of saviour is he? Is he one who comes with might and strength? Or, but actually, no, he, he lays down his life for others. He came to serve, not be served. We'll read that uh, in chapter 10. And, uh, and so his disciples or his students, if you like, the learners along with him, are to live in this same way, giving up their lives serving. Uh, practically speaking, it means that status isn't to be used to exert power over others, but it's actually to be used to lift others up. And so he uses the example of children. Um, But it's interesting that the word child or children or little ones, as some of the translations say, in these passages, it's not really just about under 12s or something like that. It's about anyone, really, who God is drawing into his family as the father. So so that's that first bit. Then we have verses 38 to 41, this few verses where John, one of Jesus' inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, he, he says that he and the others saw some others who were not in their group, 
doing what they had been specifically called and gifted by Jesus to do. Thank you very much. So Jesus, we did you a favour and we said, no, you guys can't do that because that's our job. Note the sarcasm, right? Bearing in mind that in the, the previous passage that we read last week, they had just failed spectacularly at this job of casting out a demon from someone. And now what they're doing is they're basically trying to hold on to this sense of identity because we've got that job. That's what we do, Jesus, because you told us we should do that. Um, and they're trying to keep this, this kind of special status. Now, the good thing about passages like this, just as a side note, is that, we'll, and we'll see more of this in chapter 10, if you ever feel like you've mucked up as a Christian and you've got, got it all wrong, the good news is that uh, we're in good company because Jesus, in a circle, the very closest three to him, got it just about as wrong as anyone. So thank goodness for that. Uh, in these interactions with Jesus, uh, what he is, is doing, uh, uh, what we see a lot of in Mark's gospel, is that he, Jesus is shifting his followers' assumptions about who's in and who's out. You're not in Jesus' circle if you kind of try to push your way in or prove your way or fight your way or work your way in or you think you have some special privilege for some reason. That's not what makes you part of Jesus' circle. Uh, it's, it's not that at all. Now, then we go to verses 42 and 50, to 50, uh, where Jesus drops this seriously heavy stuff. He uses, uh, it starts with this bit about, you know, if anyone would cause any of these little ones to stumble. This term, little ones or children, used again, um, it was earlier as well. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, just little kids. We're talking about anyone who God would reach out to as their father um, because they're willing to and ready to turn to, to him. So Jesus says, if anyone causes them to stumble. Now this word in some of the translations, it's, it's used a number of times and sometimes it's translated as causes to sin. So if you cause one of these ones to sin, but it's not a great translation of the word. It, it's more about, like what we read, it's more about the relationship with God altogether. Uh, this faith in, this trust in Jesus and, and his heavenly Father. So it's, it's about not being a stumbling block to that relationship with God. So essentially Jesus kicks this, this whole thing off. He says, if anyone becomes a, like a blockage to, for anybody else to have a relationship with me or to have a relationship with God, then it's, it's bad. And remember, this is in the context. This isn't just kind of out of the blue. This is in the context of his disciples just having told others not to release people from demonic bondage because they're, they're not in our circle. And so Jesus is talking to them here. You guys have actually just been a bit of a blockage to others experiencing God's love. And he says, if you get in the way, if anyone gets in the way of others, coming to me, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck so they would be thrown into the sea. This is, this is so graphic. It's not like, you know, like a, a stone hung around with a string. It's, it's talking about a large, heavy stone somehow placed directly around the neck um, and so that you would go to a quick, a quick death. 
It's, it's really, it's graphic. It's not just like, oh, well, what's, it's, it's really very graphic. And, and note that Jesus is not saying that this is the fate of someone who gets in the way of, of another coming to, to, of another person's faith. He's saying this is better than that person's fate. Their true fate is described in the following verses where he talks about this thing called Gehenna, and we'll come to that in a second. Before we go there, I want to explain why, why I feel this is so important for us not to just skim over because it's hard to understand or it's, or it's uncomfortable. And that is that this is not, this, this warning of Jesus is not about someone who is maliciously, intentionally trying to steer someone away from a life of faith in Christ. It's, it's not about the Pharisees or the Romans or in our day, it's not about a communist or an anti-Christian or, or, or a, um, a, a Satanist or something like that. He's actually talking to his followers. And he's actually talking about those who would, who would say, we, we want to follow you. What they are doing, his disciples there, is that they were in that they were intentionally getting in the way? Uh, sorry, not intentionally. That's what I just said. It's not about. They were unintentionally getting in the way of someone's path towards a loving and gracious God because they were insecure and they craved recognition and special status. This lack of a secure identity and I'm loved, I'm accepted by Jesus no matter what meant that they became a stumbling block to others. And as I began to reflect on this, it just hit me right between the eyeballs that the disciples were trying to find their identity and their status from what they were doing for Jesus rather than accepting that they were loved by him, they were chosen by him to be his followers and as a result of trying to find their identity in what they were doing for Jesus, they became a stumbling block to others experiencing the love of God because they were not secure in who they were. Now, does that sound like you? Because I know it sounds like me. And it makes me go, oh my goodness, I need to take note of this. I know that I, I can try to hold on to an identity that, that, that is based on what I do. I'm a pastor, I'm a, t- I'm a this or whatever it might be. Wanting to, to prove myself to God, wanting to, to be revered by people and, 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 and what I do giving me the identity that I, that I think of, of who I am. But, but then if I do that, I'm not secure in just who God has called me. And then I become a stumbling block to others. And so I have stood in front, I'm ashamed to say, I've stood in front of people before with an opportunity to say something of Jesus and their need for him to give them everlasting life. And then I've wavered. And it might be because I'm embarrassed, sometimes because I'm scared or I'm just tired or for whatever reason I find it easier not to. Maybe it's because I know that, that telling them that at present I think they're heading towards an eternity without God because of their sin. Maybe it's I, I'm, I'm, I hesitate because I know it might mean telling them that, that, that some of the way they're living isn't pleasing to God. 
Maybe it's because I know it might mean that I seem holier than thou, and I, and I don't want them to kind of judge me in that way, or they might reject what I have to say, so they think I'm a weird. Or maybe it's because I wonder, if I get this wrong, God, will you be disappointed in me? Whatever the reason might be, I, I don't know how it plays out for you when you, we, you, you somehow don't become a, a smooth path for others to explore Jesus, but the danger of thinking that God loves and accepts me because of what I do is that I can then get in the way of somebody else's path to God. Do you see this? This is what's happening here with the disciples. And so reading this passage this week, I'll be honest, I just... I was studying it and I was, I was, I was starting to realise what it was really saying and what it really meant and I, I just kind of broke down and said, God, I need you to forgive me because more than once I know I have been a blockage, a stumbling block between you and someone that des- you desperately want to be in your family. And, and I just I said, God, I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful that knowing the rest of the gospel and what the rest of what Jesus taught. I think he has forgiven me. I think he does forgive us. He'll continue to forgive me when I mess it up again because heaven knows I'll mess it up again. But I know that I need to change where I find my identity and my security because it is sin. No questions about it. It is sin to find our identity in works, in what we do. And it needs to be crucified in me because the eternity of others may actually depend on it. And this is the hard message of this passage. Now, I presume that some of you will feel the same way this morning, you know, especially as we keep reading and read what Jesus says about the fate of those who get in the way of others. But please know, please know before we move on, God is gracious. He forgives us when we come before him, when we're repentant, when we're willing to change. God is gracious. So what exactly does Jesus say is the fate of those who cause others to stumble? What could possibly be worse than, than, than being drowned with a millstone around our neck? It's, it's what in the Greek is called Gehenna. So, oh, I think it's actually a Hebrew word, um, which is the theme of the following verses where Jesus says these three things where if you are going to cause yourself to stumble, to, if there's something in your life that's going to be a blockage to relationship with God, your hand, cut it off. If it's your eye, pluck it out. Please don't go home and chop your hand off or pluck your eye out. He's trying, to, he's trying to communicate the seriousness of it. There's nothing more important than this relationship with God. But Gehenna um, is... Uh, the, it, it's this, it's this theme of those verses where um, he says, if you, you need to deal with that thing or you'll end up in Gehenna. Um, it's a term in apocalyptic literature for the ultimate place of punishment of the ungodly. And in our translations, it's usually the word hell. Although sometimes there's other words in the Greek, like Hades, that similarly refer to like a place of the dead um, that gets translated as hell. Gehenna was actually this kind of big rubbish pile, I think, with like, you know, it was like burned up. So it's talking about death and, and, and what, something that's kind of cast out. But this, this passage, it also thankfully talks about the kingdom of God, not just about death and destruction and eternity without God. It also uh, talks about the kingdom of God, or as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the kingdom of heaven, same thing. Um, and you may 
may have noticed is as you read these three, we read these three verses, um, twice he says, uh, it's better for you to enter life. And then the third time he says, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God. So he's equating life with the kingdom of heaven, with the kingdom of God, and really death equated with henna or hell, if you like. So on the flip side, this graphic description of hell, which is very much like death, it's worms and incineration, but somehow experienced. He's saying we must avoid that at all costs, at all costs. Now, I've already covered a couple of weeks ago this big question of how could a loving God send innocent people to an eternity without him? And I've talked about how ultimately it's... He's, he's given us a choice. Every person is born, the scriptures say, with this inbuilt uh, uh, knowledge of the divine and that we have this choice to seek out God and find him. And if we do, he will reveal himself to us. But what today's passage makes clear is that life is sustained only in God. Heaven, his kingdom, his presence, that is life. And, and on the flip side, hell, his absence, that is death. And for a temporary period on this earth, because we are temporary residents and foreigners here, for a period on this earth, we, have, we experience life. We're physically alive because God is here. God is sustaining all things. He hasn't left yet. But we also experience hell simultaneously because our sin separates us from God. And so we live in this dual reality. But one day, it won't be a mixture anymore. It won't be this two, these two kingdoms exist, coexisting together. It'll be life or death. It'll be heaven or hell, if you want to use that terminology. And eternal death, Jesus is seeming to say that eternal death may not just be sort of ceasing to exist in, in this kind of permanently asleep state. I have to be honest, I really hope that it is. I really, really, really hope that for the sake of those who have not chosen Jesus, that, that, that hell is, is, is just kind of being asleep. But what Jesus describes is far worse. And now, Jesus, now disciples of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus... Um, we know where we are going. This is the good news. Disciples of Jesus know where they are going, know what eternity looks like, because a disciple has entrusted their life into the hands of Jesus, saying, my life is not my own. My life is hidden in Christ, and Christ is uh, the one who gives us eternal life with God forever. But this warning, and this is what's so challenging about this passage, this warning of Jesus it's still to his followers, to the ones who are alongside him. This warning is, is still to us. He seems to be saying, if, if you're going to get in the way of someone that I'm reaching out to, you want to consider if you're really with me. And then he finishes with this. He says, everyone will be salted with fire, which is kind of a bit strange, but it's connected to the next bit about salt. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace 
with each other. Um, now, you might read that and, and go, hang on a second, how can salt not be salty? Um, and you're right, it can't. Sodium chloride can't become unsalty, of course, but in those days the salt was like these deposits from around the Dead Sea, for example, which had other minerals and things as well, and the sodium could leach out of that and it would just leave like the mineral behind. And so this, this is analogous of disciples who have lost their saltiness. Uh, disciples that don't anymore have the beneficial impact upon the lives of others that they serve and they give up their lives for, for the sake of the gospel. Um, only salty disciples are really still disciples, if, if that makes sense. And, and it would seem that Jesus is saying that it's not just about not getting in the way. I mean, if we just I'll become a Christian, now I'll just hide to make sure I don't, you know, get in the way of anybody else's coming to Jesus. No, it's not just about not getting in the way. It's about are you actually being helpful in the process of others coming to God? Are you salty? Are you salt seasoning the world with Jesus? It, it's such a deeply, deeply uncomfortable question to ask if you're hindering or not helping others to come to Jesus and to, experiencing, and to experience him more fully. It's such a deeply uncomfortable question to ask this, you know, do you really belong to Jesus? Do you have eternal life with him? Especially when Jesus goes and he paints this picture of the reality of eternal death, of hell, the reality of true absence of God. And everything in me just wants to skip past this bit and just, just avoid the the emails and the funny looks or whatever this might result in. But, and I kind of just want to, want to find ways to, to share God's love with people that didn't involve help, helping them see the seriousness of their sin and the holiness of God and the reality of eternal life without him. But along with what we've read today, we've also heard Jesus say, if you're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of you when I come into my Father's kingdom. It's deeply challenging stuff. And so I don't know about you, but I read this and I go, you know what, I need God's forgiveness again. I, I, and I also I need a fear of the holiness of God and honesty about the reality of hell, eternal life, eternal death, eternity without God, so that I don't start turning the gospel into something that's a feel-good message. I just want to sit with that for a minute, remembering the grace of God, remembering that when we come to him, he forgives us and he gives us another chance. I'm, this, is, this is not to get us to question our salvation. It's to get us to question where we are at with Jesus and if we need to repent again. More than this burden of the reality of an eternity without God, though, for other people, I think that you and I also need a transformation of the heart when it comes to our identity. And this is where, for me, the message of good news is in this passage. If you want to be known and recognized by what you do, your status, your accomplishment, your, your greatness, in a sense, you'll lose your life, Jesus says, but lay all of that down. Be last be just, just serve 
And he says, then you'll come out on top. Now, how do you do that? How do you lay down your life, as Jesus said? How do you be one who, like him, serves and is not there to be served? Well, you do it by finding your identity, your status, who you are, simply in who God says you are. Can't overstate this enough. You, you do that by simply finding who you are and who God says you are as his son or his daughter. That is it. Sons and daughters of the king don't get in the way of others coming to the Father because they're not try, we're not trying to prove ourselves and go, oh, I, you know, that's my job and I should... We just basically have somebody go, oh, you want to know my dad? Absolutely. Let me introduce you to him. Sons and daughters don't get in the way of others. We don't become stumbling blocks when we know who we are, when our identity is in Jesus. I've been preaching on the importance of finding our identity in God, who God says we are and, and not what we do for a number of years now. I have to be honest, it's not until I studied this passage this week where the disciples become a stumbling block because their identity is misplaced. It's not until I studied this did I realise the impact it can really have when we don't fully embrace who we are in Christ. It's so significant. It's not just about whether, whether our relationship with God is a little bit broken or not. It's about how it has an impact on others. A number of weeks ago, I, I did some training to be able to um, coach people and help them operate from their strengths. It's this tool called Strengths Finder. It's not a um, it's not a distinctly Christian thing, but it was created by a very very smart Christian guy called Don Clifton, and um, and he basically asked the question: What if we focused on what was right with people? Uh, and and, and basically, well, I mean, we as Christians, what is right with people is that God, has, God loves them and, and calls them, but it's also about how God has made us, who he has made us to be, not what we're good at or anything like that, but who he has made us to be. And I'd, I'd, as a side note, I'd be honoured to, to do this coaching with you if you would like to catch up for a coffee sometime. I think it's really helpful. But when I did this training, the reason I mentioned it, when I did this training, I found I had learnt a lot about who, had God, who God had made me to be and who I was, not what I thought I was good at or what other people thought I was good at, who I really am. And I realised how important it is, again, to remember that and to know that. And so I started doing something a couple of weeks ago that I'd always resisted. I started to journal every morning who I am in Christ and then word Every morning fresh, what I thought the answer to that was. Who am I in Christ? Um, this is something that I always had thought that it was a thing that self-obsessed, stuck-up people did. Oh, that's just, you know, oh, I'm, I'm so special and I'm so wonderful and thank you, God, for my... No, no, it's, I realise it's not about that. It's actually about going, God, who have you said that I am? Because I need to live out of that identity. And that simple one-minute daily exercise, you know what? It turns out it's actually pretty transformative. Um, I also started this morning listening to This Is Me from um, Greatest Showman on repeat. Um, yeah. Anybody go to the concert the other night? Hugh Jackman? Wasn't it lovely to have Hugh Jackman supporting Kiala Settle? Um, I think she was the star of the show. Did only a few people go? Uh, you need to listen to This Is Me from, from Greatest Showman or just watch the movie. Um, anyway, I'm off track now. Who does God say that you are? Have you asked that question? 
Who does God, how pleased is he with you? Do you answer that question like a child who is loved or a worker who's trying to meet a quota or get a promotion? The answer to the question of how, how pleased is God with me, how pleased is God with me, if that changes from time to time, our identity is not in who he says we are, it's in our performance. But the flip side of this is that children of God, as I've sort of already said, children of God are naturally salty. When we're secure in our identity, we are then ready to give an answer for our faith at all times. It doesn't matter because we're not thinking about who what people will think of us and how we'll be perceived and whether we'll do a good enough job for God. We just want to be faithful to our dad. Um, just an example of something I heard recently. I was talking to a friend last week about this and he was saying, you know, I, I just sometimes I feel like I don't know if I'm always ready to preach the gospel when the opportunity presents itself. But he was, he was talking about a friend of his who was on the train one day and, the, and he was reading a book that had something to do with Jesus and this other guy was on the train, probably had a few drinks, um, and not quite with it, but this guy said to him uh, a bit before they got to their stop, uh, give me one good reason why I should give Jesus a chance. Now, if that was me in that situation, I think I'd probably kind of go, oh, I'm uh, you know, embarrassed about the other people around me and what they're thinking. Oh, I really believe Jesus loves you and, and, and he, he wants the best for you. And, uh, and then it, something like that. I don't know. This guy, he said, okay, what well, you know, why should you give Jesus a chance? Because one day, I believe you're going to stand before the judge. And when you do, you will want Jesus beside you, saying, He's with me, Father. And if He is, you get to spend an eternity with a God who loves you. And this guy kind of went, oh, okay. And he walked off the train. But of course, there's a whole number of other people sitting around him, listening just to that short presentation of the good news. How would we respond if given the opportunity to share the good news with someone? Are we children of God and naturally salty disciples? I just want to pray this morning as we finish for two groups of people. I think that we kind of generally fit in one of two areas. Um, some of us, what we really need constantly is a revelation from God of his deep love for us, that he is pleased with us, that he loves us no matter what. And even if we totally mark up everything that he gives us to do, he still couldn't be any more in love with us. What that is, is knowing who we are. And I think that some of us, not all of us, but some of us need that most of all, because we have a burden for the things of God. And we know what God has given us to do. We know it's full on, but then we think that he'll be disappointed if we get it wrong. And I myself am in this category, uh, somebody who goes, I, I, I want to do what pleases you, God, but that can flow over into thinking that that's what makes him approve of me. So for those people, I want to pray that God just shows you I love you no matter what. For another group, you are a lot more secure in who you are in Christ. You have no problem with that, or maybe a much less problem with that. But you may not have a burden 
for the things that break God's heart. Because you're like, God, I know you love me, but I'm not looking at the fact that God is the king establishing his kingdom in a dark world, and he has a heart for those who are heading towards an eternity without him. And so what I want to pray for you is that you would stay secure in your identity in Jesus, but that you would also have your heart broken for the reality of those who are far from God. And this is why we need each other, because we kind of lean one way or the other and we help each other be both uh, confident in, our, in who we are in Jesus and our hearts broken for the things of God and what God wants for those who are far from him, his lost children. So let me pray for us this morning and then, uh, and then we're going to sing, um, sing again. Father God, I recognize that what we've spoken about this morning and what, what this scripture is is not easy. It's not comfortable. But God, I pray that um, as we continue to reflect on this and digest it, that we would leave this place with a conviction that the good news is in this scripture, that the good news is that you love us unconditionally and when we find our identity in who you have called us to be, we naturally pave the way for others to come to know you as well. God, I want to pray for those in this room who know your heart, who, who want to follow you, who want to lead others to a relationship with you, but feel like failures when they get it wrong, who, who, who struggle to feel as if they're doing a good enough job. Father, I pray that you would give them and myself a revelation, even right now in this room, as your Holy Spirit is present here with us, that your love for us is unconditional. That, God, you love us as children and that you want us to know that you are incredibly pleased with us, no matter what. Father, I pray that you would pour out your love on us this morning to know that without a shadow of a doubt, our identity is in who you say we are. And Lord, for those who, who know this much more naturally, that they maybe have that gift of faith, just knowing that you love them, that that doesn't waver as much, but struggle to see the reality of someone who is far from you, heading towards an eternity without you and the horror of that. Lord, I pray you would place a burden on their hearts this morning. Not that it would crush them, but Lord, knowing that they're your children, they would then become vessels, they would become pathways, not stumbling blocks to others coming to know you. And I pray that through them, Lord, as, they, as, as your heart becomes their heart, Lord, that they would be a, a conduit for your grace to pour out into the lives of others, that they would boldly and confidently proclaim the gospel because they know that they've been transformed by Jesus and now want that for others. God, I thank you that you've made us all different. You've given us different gifts. You've given us different wirings and skills and strengths to be able to work together as the body of Christ to present you to this world. I pray, Lord, that we would know who we are and we would know what we have got to do and that we would do that boldly. Forgive us for where we have failed. Forgive us for where we have gotten in the way of that for others. We know that you're not sending us to hell as a result. But Lord, we want to come as Christians, as faithful followers of Jesus, with fear and trembling, knowing that you desperately 
want your lost children to come back to you. Lord, so give us that heart to bring those people to you and help us to do it, knowing that we're secure in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I, um, you know, with topics like this, if you ever want to talk about this stuff, I would love to have a coffee with you and, or somebody else who you trust. It's so important to digest this and go, okay, how do we, how do we wrestle with this stuff? If music team, do you want to come back up and we're going to sing um, 